You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Found it, uh, thank you, Mr. Walsh. I found it interesting. One of our uh, um, people uh, testified today that they uh, had their gender affirming surgery at 16. And I know uh, you in former comments mentioned uh, this uh, on your blog. At about 16, you're an adult who's mature and can make decisions. Uh, you're that at 16. I don't care what anybody says. Even going so far as to say, you know, 16 people, uh, when you're 16, you should be married and uh, and could be pregnant or should be pregnant. Um, so I'm curious if 16 is uh, a uh, an adult in your view. Uh, why does this bill have uh, the uh, minor de- defined as 18? Uh, Mr. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's that's a hit piece you took from Media Matters uh, from something when I was a, a radio host. Uh, 13, 14 years ago, my early 20s. Uh, it's also not an accurate reflection of what I actually said. Um, I was talking about uh, the fact that people tended to marry young historically, and that's all that that was about. Um, how does that relate to, the, to this subject? Just curious of your definition of, of if you feel like people are adults at 16, should... Well, uh, people are adults just... at 18... Uh, but actually, your, your brain is not fully developed until you're 25. So we should be having a conversation about whether we should even be doing these surgeries to people at 18. But certainly before 18, it's, it's absurd. I mean, do you, do, you, do you think that a 16-year-old can meaningfully consent to having their body parts removed? Do, do you? No? We do not. Yeah, we ask the questions. It's not. It's uh, okay. Representative Hammer. You are recognized. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode five hundred and fifty-five, five 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 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, February 9th, 2023, and that was, if you recognized the voice, Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire talking to some Democrats down in Tennessee about gender-affirming care and some of his past statements about 16-year-olds and what they can or can't consent to. And you've just got to love, you've just got to (laughs) love that extended silence followed by... We all ask the questions here. <laughs> Look on <laughs> the chairman's face as he takes a deep breath and lets it out like a balloon. Whew. <laughs> it's just priceless that he is speechless. They didn't know what they were getting into. Trying to go back through Matt Walsh's statements and comments and quips from years past. But, you know, there's a number of important lessons we can derive from a clip like this, as short as it is. It's under two minutes long. And thank you to Joel Abbott over at Not The Bee for getting this posted up, because that's a tweet from Ben Shapiro. And I am still not on Twitter because I dared to say a rude thing or what was considered to be rude to a certain failed uh, congressional candidate from Tennessee, a 
Chris Jolly Hale. I said, with all due respect, at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. And for that, I was, and still am, suspended from Twitter. That was back in March of last year, March 26th, I believe it was. It was supposed to be a 12-hour suspension. And here we are. Here we are. We're coming up on a year before we know it. I am still not able to get into my Twitter account. And, you know, I was just talking with my dad here recently, and he does quite a lot of tweeting and will tell me about it and my brother about it. And he says, you know, Garrett, why don't you just go ahead and, and delete that tweet? I mean, it's what's the big deal? It'll get you back on. And, you know, it, you've you've made your point. And I said, no, I, I don't think I have, though, because it's not the tweet itself. And it's not even that I could possibly maybe have reworded that. It's that this is the way that it always works for the left. They control us by controlling how obsessively we are navel-gazing about every last little word. Meanwhile, they can say the most outrageous, insane, crazy stuff, and we're not supposed to call them out on it. It's abusive. It's evil. It's tyrannical. It's totalitarian. No, I am not going to delete the tweet if that's how Twitter is going to be. There really is no point in me getting back on it, but I do appreciate that said, I do appreciate that there are people like Joel Abbott who are able to share things that have been tweeted out by people who are still on there, who got too big early on before everything was locked down. Big tech is still locked down, even with Elon Musk owning Twitter. That's not a silver bullet, obviously. If it were such a silver bullet, and if he really were either A, still on that free speech absolutism kick that he started at, or if he were able to actually exercise that principle without being totally, absolutely destroyed economically and reputationally, well, then I would be back on. Me using the word retarded is definitely not me buying, selling, or facilitating the transfer of illegal goods and services on Twitter in violation of their community standards, even though that's what I still stand accused of. The folks who are in league with intelligence agencies that operate on behalf of the U.S. government, sometimes even taking requests from lawmakers, maybe even sometimes taking requests from failed congressional candidates like Chris Jolly Hale from Tennessee, the folks at Twitter, if they represent the will of our shadow government and the deep state, the bureaucratic state here in the U.S., then it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from you are suspended from Twitter for a year for saying what a retarded thing to say in response to Chris Jolly Hale to we're going to just go ahead and arrest you on trumped up charges and throw you in jail indefinitely. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump away. It matters greatly what these back and forths are in Tennessee that Matt Walsh is engaged in. It matters greatly to the future health of this country, to the future health of us as individuals. You know, please understand what I'm saying when I say what I'm about to say, but 
Forget about the country for a moment. Forget about the United States of America and whether it's salvageable. Because you know what? Maybe it isn't. And maybe, maybe it isn't. Maybe all the people I've been talking with who are my friends and family who've been saying, uh, no, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back. Maybe they're right and maybe I'm wrong and maybe I need to reconsider how optimistic I've been in my engagement. But set all that aside. Count that as a sunk cost, if you will. Consider the state of our individual souls for a moment. Consider our families and our homes. Consider our churches and the men and women and children who attend our churches or who are members of our churches, consider the pastors and their families who are being asked to walk these tightropes in every area when they get up and they preach a sermon on any given Sunday, particularly if they're also asked and pressured by their congregation to put those sermons online. Anything that they say could potentially and probably will at some point come back to bother them or try to derail them if they dare, if they dare to speak an unpleasant word against the progressive program and the progressive agenda. Now, some are bad actors, and I've had some dealings with bad actor pastors who either on the one hand are complicit and they are caving in. It, hey, what do you want me what do you want me to say? I'll say anything you want me to say. Just keep me employed. Just please keep the paychecks coming. Just please don't cancel me. And I've also had some dealings with pastors who are leaning into this totalitarian moment that we're in right now in negative world in the United States of America, which we as American Christians are not acquainted with. We're, we're not familiar with. We haven't had this kind of an experience as Christians, broadly speaking, ever in our country's history. And there are some pastors who are leaning into that, and they take it as an excuse to be abusive jerks. And when they do, I am first in line to tell them to knock it off. Not because the culture doesn't like that, but because God's word applies equally to how we are relating to the truth when we're being harsh and (laughs) how we're relating to the truth when we are uh, being turncoats. And in some sense, to lean into being harsh and unpleasant and ugly is a compromise. It, It is a kind of throwing in the towel, even if you're still fighting, even if you're too stubborn to just flat out quit, It's a kind of throwing in the towel. So let's not do that, right? Let's not grow weary in doing what is good. Whether that weariness results in fight or flight, we need to persevere. And again, this short under two minute video clip of Matt Walsh sparring with some Democrats down in Tennessee should teach us that it's very important that we Be careful what we say. And I don't mean be careful what we say because the left might cancel us or because the godless are going to try and destroy us. I mean, be careful what we say so that we can have a good conscience. So that if somebody goes digging back into a dozen years ago of something you wrote or something you said offhand and it was a joke or whatever, 
you have a sound reason for why you said what you said. You said it carefully. You said it intentionally. You said it skillfully. I think that's more of what I mean is we need to say these things skillfully and we need to practice good communication. Absolutely. Be bold. Also be clear and precise. Now I can go back to my tweet and I can think, hmm, I regret if friends and family I know who have worked with special needs kids or they have special needs kids would read this and feel hurt because I just associated their special needs child with a failed congressional candidate from Tennessee. I apologize. I know that is that is not fair to those friends and family members that I have that I would dare to insult their child, even just potentially. And I didn't mean anything of the sort. I meant retarded in the classical sense, as in retarding, as in slowing down. There is a slowing down. There is an intentional retarding effect on our thought process to what Chris Jolly Hale tweeted out after the confirmation hearings for Kentonji Brown-Jackson, Biden's nominee to the Supreme Court. There's an intentionally retarding effect when he says, and I quote, I still remember it vividly, with all due respect, Tennessee needs to remove and replace Marsha Blackburn. And why was that? Because Marsha Blackburn, duly elected Republican senator from Tennessee, dared to ask Katanji Brown Jackson if she could define for them what a woman is. What is a woman? Marsha Blackburn asked the exact same question that Matt Walsh's very popular and very well-produced documentary, What is a Woman?, asks. And Chris Jolly Hale, Democrat, thinks that that's all we need to know to get Marsha Blackburn out of there. That's a ridiculous question. She has no business asking that question. Katanji Brown-Jackson doesn't need to be asked that kind of a question. Marsha Blackburn needs to get out of there. This is, uh, <clears throat> which one? Uh, 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 racist. This is, oh, no. Okay. Uh, let me try another one. This is <clears throat> sexist. This is, uh, no, uh, no, not quite. Um, this is transphobic. Yep. I, I don't know. Just get her out of there. I don't care what, I don't care how you have to do it. Just get her out of there. <laughs> right? No, that's, that's an intentionally <clears throat> retarding thing to say. It's a retarded thing to say, and it's a retarding thing for Chris Jolly Hale to say. Because it's designed to deflect and to divert and to, if not completely kill the conversation around gender in America, <laughs> we need to have a conversation about gender in America, by the way. Uh, but if it's, if it's not going to completely stop the conversation by conservatives about gender in America and sex in America... It's designed to slow us down while they continue to have a free hand. It is hypocritical. It is pretentious. It is presumptuous. It, it is retarded. It is retarded. And I'm off Twitter. And that's okay. And that's, <laughs> that's okay. It's certainly for the best and couldn't possibly be any better. <laughs> so here's uh, one last little thing. It's an update. Joel Abbott, again, thank you. Update, Raffle, the guy is still trying to dunk on Walsh. And here's another tweet that is 
highlighted here, and it's a retweet by Matt Walsh of the tweet by Caleb Hemmer, who is the Democrat from down in Tennessee, who was asking the questions, trying to dig up, you know, unapproved thoughts and comments from a dozen years ago. Quote, well, it leaves you speechless when someone admits they are in favor of 16 child brides getting pregnant. Here's what really went down. And then he's got a link down below to the Tennessee holler. Matt Walsh replies, the Tennessee rep who I left in stunned silence is now insisting that you watch an edited clip to see what really went down rather than the entire interaction that I posted. (laughs) It's too funny. It's just too funny. Uh, On an unrelated note. No, actually it is. It is quite related. Let me just say that again, I know this is a very controversial thing to say, and I'm not saying it to be controversial. I'm saying it because we should care very much about the precise truth. And sometimes the precise truth is very debatable because you can make an argument for several different possibilities and maybe we just don't know, right? And and that's part of the struggle, right? That That's part of what you keep studying for and you keep thinking about things so as to determine. And you talk with people who are credible and who are upright and who are also studious so that you can compare notes with them and have them double check your reasoning and double check your math and all that. But in the interest of precision, Caleb Hemmer is trying to cancel Matt Walsh for saying that 16-year-old girls should be child brides and pregnant, which just goes to show, by the way, that he he doesn't quite get Matt Walsh. Not, not shocking, but he doesn't quite get... Matt Walsh's dry, sarcastic, sardonic delivery. I do. I think it's very funny. But let's just suppose that Matt Walsh really were saying that he thinks 16-year-olds should all be married and have children. Why don't we agree with that? Why why don't we agree with that? And, And I'm not saying that we should change our minds, but I'm saying we should be intentional and we should be aware of what that comes from. Where, where does that idea come from? For one thing, we don't find it in the Bible. Okay. Let's just say that up front. Unless I missed it, we don't find that in the Bible. Also, a lot of tradition that I've read around the Christmas season holds that Mary may have been as young as 14 when she married Joseph. We don't know for sure, for sure, how old Joseph was, but he might have been anywhere from his 20s to his 30s. He might have been a bit older and therefore established, but she might have been in her mid-teens very easily. And there's a thing called presentism that we have to guard against when looking at the past, looking at other cultures, but also looking at our own culture, so to speak, insofar as Judeo-Christian values and history and morality and truth means that I can consider as a Christian the whole nativity story, the whole of the New Testament and the Old Testament part of my culture after a fashion, dare I say it, I'm adopted in, I'm I'm grafted in. But again, if Mary 
was in her mid-teens when she was betrothed and got married and got pregnant with Jesus and then gave birth to Jesus, if she was in her mid-teens, and we are appalled by that, we ought to know our reasons for being appalled. I, and, and this applies to so many things. And this is the opposite of deconstruction. I think I would call this careful construction. I would call this careful conservatism with regards to the past, as opposed to presentism. If we are always transposing all of our assumptions that we don't even necessarily know where we got them from, from the present onto previous generations, all the way back, all the way, then every moment we are busy condemning them, shaking our heads, might be a wasted moment, to say the least. For one, you're not going to change their behavior. But for two, <laughs> what if they knew some things you didn't know? What what if they were actually closer to a healthy standard than we are today in some ways? You don't know, right? You don't know. And that's the big idea. That's the point. If you don't even know because you're so busy trying to virtue signal to your peers in the present about how better we are, thank God I'm not like that sinner 2,000 years ago who had these backwards ignorant ideas. If you know why they were wrong, then by all means, proceed and let's hear the argument. But we've got to stop just making it too easy to cancel and dismiss people in the past and in the present. We've got to we've got to stop that being so easy, so flippant, so mindless. It's Mao's cultural revolution at its core, actually. It it really is. It's of a piece with the taking down of statues. It's of a piece with canceling classic works of American literature. It's of a piece with the whole gender reassignment or now they're calling it this Orwellian term gender affirming surgery trend. It's of a piece with what's being debated the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And the people who are pushing these crazy ideas about gender affirming care, and these are my pronouns and I'm going to list them. And by the way, can I just say, if you send me a connection request on LinkedIn as a professional, as a sought after professional, and I see your preferred pronouns in your LinkedIn bio, your credibility in my mind, my respect for you immediately drops precipitously. If you've got a beard and are clearly a biological male, you don't need to tell me what your preferred pronouns are because I don't care. I really don't care. I'm not going to use your preferred pronouns unless it just so happens that your preferred pronouns correspond to your gender. If you've made it impossible to distinguish whether you're a dude or whether you're a lady, you really need to come to Jesus, but I'm not going to repent of calling you my best guess. I, I'm just not. I'm just not. And if you want to fight me for that, well, then let's fight. But the people who are pushing these ideas ought to take care because at a certain point, their lack of being able to reproduce, they're intentionally destroying their own capacity to reproduce, is going to catch up with the health problems caused by their degeneracy. If they don't repent, <laughs> they, they are absolutely killing themselves. And I don't just mean suicide when somebody just abruptly decides. No, you are currently, like you are right now committing suicide. 
at a certain point, that process will be complete if you don't turn from your sins. And I would love it if you did. And you can, by God's grace, if you come to Jesus, you absolutely, by God's grace, can be a fixer-upper. And God's a very good, a very, very good fixer of your problems. He's the best there is. He can make you whole. He can make you well. He can forgive your sins. And that's the whole kit and caboodle for us as Christians. Do I care if you're hungry? I do care. I have to. I can't just say, be warmed and filled. I'll pray for you. But if you're already very well fed and trying to preach to me about how I need to not be fat phobic, well, be warmed and filled is not what I need to tell you. What I need to tell you is repent because you're in danger in a, in a different way, in another way. You know, if if Christians have gotten a bad rap, and undeservedly, if you're a close student of church history, but if Christians have gotten a bad rap for being anti-sex, do consider, do consider who made our bodies in the first place. And that is the antidote for both the transgender craze that we're living through right now and also the kind of misguided pietism that has some people taking vows of celibacy because they think that by so doing, they are holier and God will love them more and we will all affirm them more. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If he made it fun for the husband and the wife to fulfill that dominion mandate, well then I fail to see the downside. I fail to see the problem here. And I'm not going to find fault with God. But what we have going on right now is absolutely about power. It's about authority, more to the point. Power is perhaps a little bit too ambiguous and too confusing of a word to use here. It's about authority. It's about who's in charge. And what I mean is not are the Christians in charge or are the godless in charge. I mean, is God in charge? That's really the big question. And the folks who are pushing for the insanity, when it catches up with them that they're not having any kids, but the Christians are having kids, when it catches up with them that these public schools have made them incapable of being reasonable or persuadable or reasoned with, but the Christians are practicing with each other, being reasonable, being reasoned with. And so they know critical thinking. They know how to correct mistakes and spot mistakes and admit mistakes and ask for forgiveness and then do better. At a certain point, this might not go back to anything even approaching familiar American historical, I'm going to say democracy because you'll know more readily what I mean, but the American Republic. It's not going to go back to that. And I'll tell you what, for the folks who are very conservative and they love the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and they love George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and all the rest, it is never going back to that. It is not going to go back to that because we are not that people. They were well-read. They were articulate. They were hardworking. They were occupying a very different context, a very different circumstance than we are. But almost anything is on the table. And that includes if somebody 
rises up like certain so-called Christian nationalists. It would probably be more apt to call them Christian monarchists, but as some of the medievalist Christian nationalists (laughs) would say, there is nothing that precludes the possibility of a Christian prince saying, I'll take care of this. I'll deal with it. Consider the book of Judges, for instance, if that's where we're at, what follows the book of Judges? Honest question. If from a social dynamics standpoint, America is playing out the book of Judges right now, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. If we are being oppressed and God is giving us over to our enemies in many cases, well then, what follows the book of Judges? That's something to think about. Not the American War for Independence, biblically speaking. Just saying. Just saying. But we really have to think about what are the ramifications? Why do we believe what we believe? What is true? What is the cost of doing something, provided we could figure out what we should do? Also, what is the cost of doing nothing and just allowing this all to continue playing out uninterrupted the way that it has been? Presentism is also a very dangerous trap, not just because we are underappreciating the robust picture you can get when you read history, when you look back at the archaeological evidence, the historical evidence, written accounts, but also presentism makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to think ahead about what's coming down the pike. You're not learning the lessons of the past, well, then you're not making as informed of decisions in the present, and then you're not going to be ready for the future. The future is just going to happen based on whoever the strongest and wisest and most determined planner is, which ultimately is God. But humanly speaking, who knows who God might bless and who God might permit to do this, that, or the other thing, and who knows how long the world will stand. If we are just so sure that we're living in the end times right now, read The Forge of Christendom by Tom Holland. Check it out. Because if we've got another thousand years and we are putting entirely too much stock in the importance of the United States of America and the United States of America could collapse as a global superpower, just like previous superpowers have, China might be super scary right now, and it might just be the equivalent of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans and the Spanish duked it out, and then the English became ascendant. Maybe America and China duke it out, and then some other country becomes ascendant. We think that these things are always going to be the way that they are right now, and the happy thought is that A survey of history proves that not to be the case. (laughs) It's just, that's just not, that's not accurate. But that's also a sobering thought because if it's not going to be this way forever, then enjoy the good things that God has blessed you with right now. Be content. Also be a good steward because if there might be a pretty significant transformation in a different direction, you kind of kind of want to know what ducks to get in what rows so that you are ready for that. 
But enough about that. Enough about that for the moment, for the time being. Let's take a step back from historical philosophy and let's touch on another piece here at notthebee.com. Report, coup at Project Veritas ousts James O'Keefe. Yes, you heard that right. James O'Keefe is Project Veritas as far as I'm concerned, as far as a lot of people who are conservative and independent and even classically liberal are concerned. James O'Keefe is Project Veritas. Ian Miles Chong tweeted out just yesterday, James O'Keefe, founder and CEO of Project Veritas, has been placed on paid leave by the organization's board of directors as they consider removing him from leadership position. Project Veritas without James O'Keefe doesn't sound like a lot of fun, you guys. Just scroll down through some additional tweets. Swig, at Old Row Swig, thread the Project Veritas coup. A whistleblower has contacted me about the news that James O'Keefe was put on leave and stripped of all authority at Project Veritas. This is difficult for me to publish as a staunch supporter of PV for years and even a VIP at their events. But what is happening to James O'Keefe is unconscionable and the attempted hostile takeover of Project Veritas needs to be stood against by its supporters. This will not stand. James is a bit of a victim of poor corporate structure as PV is two separate orgs, a 501c3, which had very few board members and the majority of the money, and a 501c4, which had significantly more board members but less money. According to my source, this situation has allowed to two alleged ringleaders of this attempt to push James out to have a significant sway over the others despite their reasons being essentially meritless. Essentially meritless. Board members and C-suite officers involved in this, according to my source, are as follows. Board members at Termond, ringleader John Garvey, George Skakel, Joseph Barton, not the congressman, Steve Alambic, CFO Tom O'Hara, COO Barry Hinckley, ringleader, pronouns in bio. Oh, what was I just saying? What was I just saying about pronouns? <laughs> Barry Benjamin Hinckley, seasoned and successful veteran, helping build enduring organizations. That's his LinkedIn profile. Source, quote, the board held a six and a half hour struggle session versus James, where they subjected him to constant derision and insults at the insistence of Termond, O'Hara, and Hinckley. About 10 employees aired their grievances about James, which essentially boiled down to him being a tough boss to work for. At the end of this six-hour struggle session, Termond and fellow board member John Garvey put him on leave and stripped him of all authority, end quote. Quote, it was literally a Stalinesque kangaroo court trial. The thing that is so very profound to me that no one seems to grasp, John Garvey and the rest of the board did nothing to stop it. Matt Termond had it all scripted, all six bleeping hours. And then there's an Alron McIntyre who tweets out, look like, looks like rather, looks like Conquest's laws may have been too optimistic. I'm not familiar with these. I've never heard of Conquest's laws. I'll be honest. I might have to do a little bit of research just to figure out what those are. But uh, Robert Conquest's three laws of politics are as follows. If you're curious, I am just learning this. Apparently it's a thing. Number one, everyone is a conservative about what he knows best. That's an interesting and profound statement. Two, any organization not explicitly right-wing sooner or later becomes left-wing. 
Three, the simplest way to explain the behavior of any bureaucratic organization is to assume that it is controlled by a cabal of its enemies. <laughs> well, hard to argue with that. Hard to argue with that. Robbie Starbuck tweets out, James O'Keefe is Project Veritas, period. If the board tries to fire him, as rumors suggest, then they'll soon find out people will move their donations to whatever new name James O'Keefe does his investigations under. I don't know what genius came up with the idea to try a coup, dot, dot, dot. Candace Owens tweets out, there is no Project Veritas without James O'Keefe. I say this as a donor to the organization, but more importantly, as a colleague who watched him pour everything he had into PV over the years, the money and supporters will follow James. Real Vinny James tweets out, Dear Project Veritas, if James O'Keefe, the founder and chairman of Project Veritas, is forced out because you corporate types have no stomach for real journalism or because you have allegiances to Pfizer, we will follow James O'Keefe and you will become a hollow shell. Donald Trump Jr. tweets out, must read thread, James O'Keefe is Project Veritas, as far as I'm concerned, and given the timing, a week after their biggest bombshell since their inception against Pfizer, this is very fishy. There's no such thing as coincidence. And he's right. He's right. Funny, too, because the embedded tweet here from Donald Trump Jr. has one of those little lightning bolt writers for the fact checkers. See the latest COVID-19 information on Twitter. But interesting, Tim Pool's does not. His having even just mentioned Pfizer. His having even just mentioned Pfizer, apparently, has Twitter still, again, under Elon Musk, because it's not enough for some big billionaire to come in and buy Twitter, apparently. They still have the little writer there. See the latest COVID-19 information on Twitter. Tim Pool, last, last one I'll read for you. Tim Pool, lol, James is PV, IDGAF, which I presume you can figure out what that stands for, about a Project Veritas without James O'Keefe. And that's where I'm at as well. That's where I'm at. They cannot be trusted if a week after their big expose on Pfizer, all of a sudden James O'Keefe is out. See, this is how Big corporations like Pfizer, particularly if they have an incestuous relationship with regulators and Congress people in the U.S. government, this is exactly how big corporations and big government prevent themselves from being held accountable and create a chilling effect where they ultimately can just do whatever. They can just do whatever. And this is also, interestingly enough, going back to the whole idea of somebody just declaring a Christian prince. This is also exactly how it happens that at a certain pe- at a certain point, people living under repressive bureaucratic tyranny will just say, that's it. Start over entirely fresh. This is unacceptable. And it can't be salvaged. It can't be fixed. Just burn the whole thing down. I refer you back to that podcast episode I did a while ago about the difference between Christian federalism and Christian nationalism. More on that soon, by the way. I have some additional thoughts after conferring with other studious friends of mine who made some really good points. They made some really good points, Bobby McPherson and Joseph Crampton. But let me just say, this is part of 
how it comes to be that at a certain point, enough is enough. This is the kind of corruption that leads to Magna Carta moments. The problem in our case is that Magna Carta put limitations on the king, and we don't have a king per se. We have a cabal of unelected bureaucrats and corporatists. So how do you put limitations on them? What does a Magna Carta for big tech look like? What does a Magna Carta for big pharma look like? What does a Magna Carta for the bureaucratic state look like? The folks who are, I think, probably going to be successful, let's just be honest, if they've gone this far, then they're committed. But if the folks who are removing James O'Keefe over at Project Veritas, if they are successful, it only pours gasoline on the fire that has been started, which they started, to be clear, to be very, very clear. We didn't start the fire. Moving on. DeSantis to take control of Disney's Orlando district under new legislation. Ryan Saavedra reports for the Daily Wire, February 6th. Newly released legislation by Florida Republicans on Monday will allow Governor Ron DeSantis to appoint all five leaders of Disney's tax district in Orlando and will officially rename the district. The bill will turn the Reedy Creek Improvement District into the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District and will deliver on DeSantis's promise last year to take over the district. DeSantis's office said that the special tax district, which has allowed Disney to govern themselves since 1967, turned the theme park into a, quote, unaccountable corporate kingdom, end quote. Ah, see, we're already there. There you go. <laughs> quote, Florida is dissolving the corporate kingdom and beginning a new era of accountability and transparency, DeSantis' office said. Quote, these actions ensure a state-controlled district accountable to the people instead of a corporate-controlled kingdom, end quote. And this is really good. This is really, really good stuff. This is the kind of move that we need more of. Just no two ways about it. This is how to fight. And I would argue, like the whole business with Trump, and let's talk about that, by the way, the whole business with Trump trying to share a photo of Ron DeSantis back when he was a school teacher partying with some 19-year-old girls, supposedly, and calling Ron DeSantis a groomer because he was having some drinks with some girls who had been students of his, but now they were graduated and moved on by a few years. Where, where, do, I, where do I start here? That's ridiculous. That's absurd. Also, this is exactly why so many Republicans, so many conservatives have been turned off by Trump for years. Did he get a lot of things accomplished? Did he get a lot accomplished during his four years as president? Yes, he did. Would I vote for him again if he's the candidate in 2024 on the Republican ticket? I probably will. Almost certainly will. I'll leave the definitely's on the table behind me. And I'm going to put the probably on the table in front of me just in case he gets super weird by doing more stuff like this. But he needs to stop. He needs to stop going after DeSantis the way that he is. 
I mean, if that's what your idea of a bombshell is, that he had a beer with some girls that he had taught in high school who were now graduated. I mean, going back to the whole Matt Walsh thing and the 16-year-old girls should be married and pregnant line. I mean, if they were 19, if they were 20, they are definitely not, they're definitely not even 16. And just him taking a photo with them, that's all I've seen. And that is not, not by any stretch, justification for calling him a groomer. Get out of here with that. That's, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. Unacceptable. No, no, that is not how we fight. That is a poison pill. DeSantis and Florida Republicans going after Walt Disney's special tax status. That's how you fight. That's how you fight. It's a good move and it's the right way to go about it. Moving on. Let's talk about the Queen James Bible. The Queen James Bible. I had never heard of this. If you hadn't either, you're about to know more. So the Queen James Bible is listed on Amazon for $24.23, down from $29.95, published paperback November 27th, 2012. It has 629 ratings and an average of three out of five stars. The author is listed as God. This is the gay Bible. Reading the summary on Amazon. The Queen James Bible is based on the King James Bible, which is funny because it's like you're already, <laughs> you're like even just right out of the gate. It's based on the King James Bible. So it's still like, it's still relative. Like you can't get a, do you understand? Like you're, you can't get away from referencing the normative in your deviance. Because there would be no deviance, which is the whole point, because this is just a this is just a struggle session for power, for authority. You want all of it. You want to be God. And so you did this, and then you put God as the author. May God have mercy on your soul, actually. Not may you have mercy on your soul. May God have mercy on your soul. The Queen James Bible is based on the King James Bible, edited to prevent homophobic misinterpretation. Homosexuality in the Bible. Homosexuality was first mentioned in the Bible in 1946 in the Revised Standard Version. There is no mention of or reference to homosexuality in any Bible prior to this. Only interpretations have been made. Anti-LGBT Bible interpretations commonly cite only eight verses in the Bible. How many do you need? Eight is actually a pretty goodly number, uh, truth be told. Commonly cite only eight verses in the Bible that they interpret to mean homosexuality is a sin. Eight verses in a book of thousands. The Queen James Bible seeks to resolve interpretive ambiguity in the Bible as it pertains to homosexuality. We edited those eight verses in a way that makes homophobic interpretations impossible. Voila! Abracadabra. Make your needing to repent disappear. Just like that. Who is Queen James? The King James Bible is the most popular Bible of all time and arguably the most important English language document of all time. It is the brainchild and namesake of King James I, who wanted an English language Bible 
that all could own and read. The KJV, as it is called, has been in print for over 400 years and has brought more people to Christ than any other Bible translation. Commonly known to biographers, but often surprising to most Christians, King James I was a well-known bisexual. Though he did marry a woman, his many gay relationships were so well-known that amongst some of his friends and court, he was known as Queen James. It is in his great debt and honor that we name the Queen James Bible so. A fabulous thing, they continue. The QJB is a big, fabulous Bible. It is printed and bound in the United States on thick, high-quality paper in a beautiful, readable typeface. It is the perfect Bible for ceremony, study, sermon, gift-giving, or simply to put on display in the home or church. You can't choose your sexuality, but you can choose Jesus. Now you can choose a Bible, too. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 being quoted there at the bottom of this product description. How did I come to know that this is a thing? Well, it's very simple. We had Biblical Training Group, a guide to Christian theology, hosted in our home here recently. And in the course of discussion, we were talking about translations of the Bible. And one of the women in our group mentioned that there was actually a church, there is a church across town here in Greeley, that has, shall we say, colorful signs, colorful phrases and statements and assertions and announcements on their sign out front. And it just so happened that there was something that this woman and her husband were invited to attend or go to at this church once upon a time. And while they were there, she got to talking about uh, some of their um, affirmative stances as made clear by the sign out front of the church. And just, uh, she's a very sweet lady. She is, but I can just imagine this being a question she would ask like, so <laughs> what's up with the sign, right? Like, <laughs> can you help me understand why you are the way that you are? <laughs> she asked them about the verses that pertain to homosexuality in the Bible. I think, I think that's what I remember. Maybe she didn't ask them. Maybe she just was curious and she picked up one of the Bibles that they had and decided to look for those verses and she couldn't find them. Like they had just been removed. And I'm told that the Bible they carry in that church is the Queen James Bible. So it's not just some gag gift. It's not just some joke that some homosexuals, some gay Christians so-called decided to put this thing out there. There's an actual church in Greeley, Colorado that this is their Bible. This is their Bible. And they are not, uh, embarrassed about that. They're proud of it. Loud and proud. Just drive by the church and you'll see the signs out front. They are very proud of their sin and they don't regard it as sin. They see it as being totally normal, totally okay with God. In fact, if you object, you're the one who's abnormal. You're the one who needs to repent. See? But let's just talk briefly about the idea that this Bible is named after the, as they say, 
many gay relationships that were so well known among some of King James's friends at court. He was known as Queen James. What is the unspoken claim there? Or what is the allegation? Or what is the point? Do we think, I'll frame it this way, do we think that if he was a bisexual and also commissioned the King James Version of the Bible, that therefore means that his bisexuality is sanctified by virtue of his having commissioned the King James Version of the Bible, an English translation of the Bible. Do we think that his bisexuality is not a sin and cannot be a sin? Also, too, if it turns out that he did a number of other untoward wicked things, does that therefore mean that all those other behaviors are consecrated, sanctified, justified, acceptable to a holy and righteous God? Is that the presumption? Is that the claim? Is that the point that they're trying to make? Or let's put it a different way. If King James I was a character in the Bible and we read that he was a bisexual, that he was not faithful to his wife, but more than that, he was a homosexual. In addition to being married to a woman, he was also a homosexual and had many homosexual trysts. If we read that in the Bible, would that being described mean that it was affirmed or that it was normalized or that it wasn't sin? A quick test is to just change the behavior to literally any other behavior that is recorded or described in the Bible and to ask that same question. Does the Bible describing certain ways of relating necessarily normalize those behaviors or justify those behaviors? Or should we take that to mean if behaviors are described in the Bible, that therefore those behaviors are normally okay or good or acceptable to a holy and righteous God? The simple answer is no, because there are many behaviors which are described in this or that passage in the Old Testament and in the New Testament without an immediate condemnation. And by immediate, I mean without a condemnation that is right there in the verse, right there in that chapter, right there in even that book. Going back to the book of Judges, there are many behaviors or actions recorded in the book of Judges that are evil or corrupt or wicked or foolish that are not called such in the book of Judges, but we know that they are regarded by God as such and should be regarded by us as such when we read the rest of the biblical text. For the first example that comes to my mind, consider Judges 19. (laughs) And just for anyhow, I'm going to read it for you in the KJV, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. And his concubine played the whore against him and went away from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. And her husband arose and went after her to speak friendly unto her and to bring her again, having his servants 
with him and a couple of asses, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the damsel saw him, he rejoiced to meet him. And his father-in-law, the damsel's father, retained him, and he abode with him three days. So they did eat and drink and lodged there. And it came to pass on the fourth day, when they arose early in the morning, that he rose up to depart. And the damsel's father said unto his son-in-law, Comfort thine heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. And they sat down, and did eat and drink, both of them together. For the damsel's father had said unto the man, Be content, I pray thee, and tarry all night, and let thine heart be merry. And when the man rose up to depart, his father-in-law urged him. Therefore he lodged there again. And he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. And the damsel's father said, Comfort thine heart, I pray thee. And they tarried until afternoon, and they did both of them eat. And when the man rose up to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the damsel's father, said unto him, Behold, now the day draweth toward evening. I pray you, tarry all night. Behold, the day groweth to an end. Lodge here, that thine heart may be merry, and tomorrow get you early on your way, that thou mayest go home. But the man would not tarry that night, but he rose up and departed, and came over against Jabus, which is Jerusalem. And there were with him two asses saddled, his concubine also was with him. And when they were by Jabus, the day was far spent, and the servant said unto his master, Come, I pray thee, and let us turn in into this city of the Jebusites, and lodge in it. And his master said unto him, We will not turn aside hither into the city of a stranger that is not of the children of Israel. We will pass over to Gibeah. And he said unto his servant, Come, and let us draw near to one of the places to lodge all night in Gibeah, or in Ramah. And they passed on, and went their way, and the sun went down upon them when they were by Gibeah, which belongeth to Benjamin. And they turned aside thither to go in and to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat him down in a street of the city, for there was no man that took them into his house to lodging. And behold, there came an old man from his work out of the field at even, which was also of Mount Ephraim, and he sojourned at Gibeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he had lifted up his eyes, he saw a wayfaring man in the street of the city. And the old man said, Whither goest thou? And whence comest thou? And he said unto him, We are passing from Bethlehem Judah toward the side of Mount Ephraim. From thence am I, and I went to Bethlehem Judah, but I am now going to the house of Yahweh, and there is no man that receiveth me to house. Yet there is both straw and provender for our asses, and there is bread and wine also for me, and for thy handmaid, and for the young man which is with thy servants. There is no want of any thing. And the old man said, Peace be with thee. Howsoever let all thy wants lie upon me, only lodge not in the street. So he brought him into his house, and gave provender unto the asses, and they washed their feet, and did eat and drink. Now, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, beset the house round about, and beat at the door, and spake to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring forth the man that came into thine house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out unto them, and said unto them, Nay, my brethren, nay, I pray you, 
do not so wickedly. Seeing that this man is come into mine house, do not this folly. Behold, here is my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine. Them I will bring out now, and humble ye them, and do with them what seemeth good unto you. But unto this man do not so vile a thing. But the men would not hearken to him. So the man took his concubine, and brought her forth unto them, and they knew her, and abused her all night until the morning, and when the day began to spring, they let her go. Then came the woman in the dawning of the day, and fell down at the door of the man's house, where her lord was, till it was light. And her lord rose up in the morning, and opened the doors of the house, and went out to go his way. And behold, the woman, his concubine, was fallen down at the door of the house, and her hands were upon the threshold. And he said unto her, Up, and let us be going. But none answered. Then the man took her upon an ass, and the man rose up, and gat him unto his place. And when he was come into his house, he took a knife, and laid hold on his concubine, and divided her, together with her bones, into twelve pieces, and sent her into all the coasts of Israel. And it was so, that all that saw it said, There was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider of it, take advice, and speak your minds. Then all the children of Israel went out, and the congregation was gathered together as one man, from Dan even to Beersheba, with the land of Gilead, unto Yahweh in Mizpah. And the chief of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, four hundred thousand footmen that drew sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel were gone up to Mizpah. Then said the children of Israel, Tell us, how was this wickedness? And the Levite, the husband of the woman that was slain, answered and said, I came into Gibeah that belongeth to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to lodge. And the men of Gibeah rose against me, and beset the house round about upon me by night, and thought to have slain me, and my concubine have they forced that she is dead. And I took my concubine, and cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed lewdness and folly in Israel. Behold, ye are all children of Israel. Give here your advice and counsel. And all the people arose as one man, saying, We will not any of us go to his tent, neither will we any of us turn into his house. But now this shall be the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up by lot against it. And we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand, to fetch victual for the people that they may do, when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, according to all the folly that they have wrought in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, knit together as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What wickedness is this that is done among you? Now therefore deliver us the men, the children of Belial, which are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and put away evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not hearken to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. But the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together out of the cities into Gibeah to go out to battle against the children of Israel. And the children of Benjamin were numbered at that time out of the cities twenty and six thousand men that drew sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah 
which were numbered 700 chosen men. Among all this people, there were 700 chosen men left-handed. Everyone could sling stones as a hairbreadth and not miss. And the men of Israel beside Benjamin were numbered 400,000 men that drew sword. All these were men of war. And the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God and asked counsel of God and said, Which of us shall go up first to the battle against the children of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up first. And the children of Israel rose up in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in array to fight against them at Gibeah. And the children of Benjamin came forth out of Gibeah and destroyed down to the ground of the Israelites that day twenty and two thousand men. And the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and set their battle again in array in the place where they put themselves in array the first day. And the children of Israel went up and wept before Yahweh until even, and asked counsel of Yahweh, saying, Shall I go up again to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother? And Yahweh said, Go up against him. And the children of Israel came near against the children of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went forth against them out of Gibeah the second day, and destroyed down to the ground of the children of Israel again eighteen thousand men. All these drew the sword. Then all the children of Israel and all the people went up and came unto the house of God and wept and sat there before Yahweh and fasted that day until even and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. And the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother? Or shall I cease? And Yahweh said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into thine hand. And Israel set liars in wait round about Gibeah. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in array against Gibeah, as at other times. And the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city, and they began to smite of the people and kill, as at other times in the highways, of which one goeth up to the house of God, and the other to Gibeah in the field, about thirty men of Israel. And the children of Benjamin said, They are smitten down before us, as at the first. But the children of Israel said, Let us flee, and draw them from the city unto the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place, and put themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the liars in wait of Israel came forth out of their places, even out of the meadows of Gibeah. And there came against Gibeah ten thousand chosen men out of all Israel, and the battle was sore, but they knew not that evil was near them. And Yahweh smote Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed of the Benjamites that day twenty and five thousand and a hundred men. All these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were smitten, for the men of Israel gave place to the Benjamites because they trusted unto the liars in wait, which they had set beside Gibeah. And the liars in wait hasted and rushed upon Gibeah, and the liars in wait drew themselves along and smote all the city with the edge of the sword. Hoofda. You won't get that one in Veggie Tales. I'll tell you that.
Now, that is the conclusion. Judges 19 and 20. Tell me this, ladies and gentlemen, stopping in verse 37 or the end of 37, all of that is presented. And might I just say, Game of Thrones has got nothing on the Bible. If you actually read it, (laughs) Uh, there's some pretty messed up, pretty messed up stuff that happens. If that is described, and if it happened, which it did, and it is, that does not mean that everything that was described and everything that happened is good, clearly, clearly. So the whole premise of calling the Queen James Bible the Queen James Bible because King James I was purported to be a bisexual and somehow that justifies it is absurd. GotQuestions.org has a page for what is the Queen James Bible. Here's their answer. The Queen James Bible, QJV, is also called the Gay Bible and is an edit of the biblical text done in the name of preventing, quote, homophobic interpretations, end quote. To accomplish this goal, the publishers printed a Bible in which all negative references to homosexuality have been removed. The Queen James Bible was published in 2012 and is based on the 1769 edition of the King James Bible. The publishers of the Queen James Bible chose the name Queen James as an obvious takeoff on the King James Version as the authorized version of 1611 is commonly called. The publishers of the Gay Bible also claim that King James was bisexual, so their choice of title capitalizes on the slang meaning of the term queen. The editors of the Queen James Bible who chose to be anonymous, claim that there was no reference to homosexuality in any Bible translation prior to the 1946 Revised Standard Version. Then, they assert, anti-LGBT Bible interpretations arose based on a faulty translation in the RSV of eight verses. The unidentified scholars, their scholastic credentials are unknown, who produced the Queen James Bible suggest that all Bible translations of these eight verses are wrong and that they are the only ones who have got it right. Below are the eight verses. The King James Version is shown first, followed by the Queen James Version and some comments concerning each change. And we're just going to run through these because it's important. Genesis 19.5 And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them, KJV. The expression to know in this context means to have sexual intercourse. In the QJV, that passage reads, And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may rape and humiliate them. End quote. The change from know them to rape and humiliate them is based on the idea that male-on-male rape is not really a sexual act, but is an expression of power and domination. It is clear the physical rape was what the men of Sodom had in mind, but nowhere in the Hebrew text is the word humiliate used. Uh, Also, just to be very clear, the making of this QJV Bible is itself about power and domination. That is to say, you're trying to rape the Bible, and God will not be mocked. Leviticus 18.22 in the KJV, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind, it is abomination. Now, I would imagine, before I read the QJV, 
that would be a very difficult, a very difficult passage to just do what they did with Genesis 19.5 concerning. But here's what it says concerning the QJV. The editors of the Queen James Version reckon that Leviticus is outdated as a moral code. They say the Hebrew word translated abomination is something that was, quote, ritually unclean, end quote, or a, quote, taboo, end quote. From this, they assert that a biblical abomination would be understood by today's standards to be something scandalous because they do not consider homosexual relations to be taboo and because not all abominable offenses were punishable by death the publishers of the qjv conclude that at some point in time there must have been an error in translation whereas leviticus 2013 clearly says that men lying together is an abomination punishable by death the editors of the qjv claimed that if having sex with a man was punishable by death, it wouldn't be called an abomination. However, it is clear that to lie with a person does not mean simply to be prone and go to sleep. The biblical expression to lie with means to have sexual relations. The editors of the Queen James Version want us to believe that Leviticus 18.12 and 20.13 are all about pagan worship of the god Molech. They have therefore taken the liberty of adding to the word of God. This is how they have rendered these two passages. Quote, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind in the temple of Molech. It is an abomination. Quote, if a man also lie with mankind in the temple of Molech, as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And quote, QJV emphasis added. So according to the editors of the QJV, it is abominable for a man to have sex with a man if they're in the temple of Moloch, but it's not abominable for a man to have sex with a man if it has nothing to do with Moloch worship, which is just, that's just ridiculous. That's crazy. That's insane. Because what then is the implication? That it's okay for you to have sex with a woman in the temple of Moloch? Like that's just normal? That's just standard practice? Or that, I like, what? What? No. No. No, 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 no. But let's fast forward. Romans 126 to 27, gotquestions.org, continues on. For this cause, God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat, end quote. The plain reading of this passage indicates that lesbianism and homosexuality are unnatural. The Greek word for against nature means monstrous, abnormal, and perverse, that which is contrary to nature's laws. But the editors of the Queen James Bible assert that verse 26 is not talking about women engaging in lesbian sex, neither do they accept that lesbianism is unnatural, while acknowledging that they really have no idea what is meant by women engaging in the unnatural use of their bodies— they suggest it could mean pagan dancing. As for the men, we are to believe the unseemly behavior of sexual activity linked to idolatry. The Queen James Bible reads thus, quote, Their women did change their natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men left of the natural use of the woman burned in ritual lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is pagan and unseemly. For this cause God gave the idolaters up into vile affections, receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat, QJV, emphasis added. Note how they have again added to the word of God to conform it to their 
thinking. The editors of the Queen James Bible claim that most scholars believe the sin in Romans 1 isn't being gay or lesbian or having gay sex. The sin, they say, is pagan worship. Interestingly, there is no evidence to back up their claim that most scholars agree with them. Also, might I just add, might I just add, this is a both and and not an either or. That paganism would be linked with homosexuality does not mean that the real problem is only the paganism. If the paganism is upstream of the homosexuality, then you can't just take out the paganism and still have the homosexuality when God says, thou shalt not. This is a both and. The same God who says, don't lie with a man as you would with a woman is also saying, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. It's not an either or. It's not It's not as though we are a genie and God gets three wishes and he's already used up all of them to tell us to worship him alone. That's, that's not the way that it works. That's not the way that it works. Also, the way that it doesn't work is that God makes our bodies, establishes the design, communicates his intent, and then we get to say, first and foremost, what is natural and what is unnatural based on our preferences and what we're already doing. Again, this goes back to, yes, the, the question of power and domination. But the work that they're doing on the KJV to reinterpret it or to change the meaning of passages, that is an act of will and it all comes down to who they want to have power and authority. And it's them trying to assert dominance. Moving on. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. KJV. The Greek word for soft is translated as effeminate. That is soft, womanly man. But the Queen James Bible editors claim that the word effeminate is unrelated to how the word is used today. Rather, it means morally weak. Well, again, this is not an either or. This is not an either or. This is a both and because effeminate men are morally weak. And morally weak men typically do tend towards effeminacy. This is both and. It's not either or. Effeminate men are morally weak. Otherwise, they wouldn't be effeminate. Also, effeminate men, very often, they're being effeminate because they're trying to avoid getting in trouble for their other moral failings. And so they're trying to appear as though they are no threat at all, even though they're doing very corrupt things. And then at a certain point, the dam bursts and they do some violence, including but not limited to their fellow man or the Bible itself. Here's how QJV translates 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Quote, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor morally weak, nor promiscuous. Oh, why stop there? Why why stop there? Why, uh, Why not throw in in the temple of Molech here, right? Know ye not that the unrighteous in the temple of Molech shall not inherit the kingdom of God? But the unrighteous outside of the temple of Molech, well, absolutely, yeah, they're totally getting in, definitely. Neither fornicators in the temple of Molech, nor idolaters in the temple of Molech, nor adulterers in the temple of Molech, nor morally weak in the temple of Molech, nor promiscuous in the temple of Molech. But if you're all those things anywhere else, totally fine. 
In the Temple of Moloch, you're going to hell. Outside the Temple of Moloch, don't worry about it. Forget about it. No, <laughs> it just that doesn't make any sense. Morally weak and effeminate. It's not either or. It's both and. To be an effeminate man is to be morally weak. First Timothy 1.10. For whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. KJV. The editors of the Queen James Bible objected to the expression, defile themselves with mankind, so they simply deleted with mankind. QJV renders that passage as follows, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Again, why, why did you stop throwing in in the temple of Moloch? Why not throw it in here a couple of times? Hmm? Why not? For whoremongers in the temple of Moloch, for them that defile themselves in the temple of Moloch, for men-stealers in the temple of Moloch. But if you do it anywhere else, totally fine. No big deal. Don't worry about it. One more. Jude 1.7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. KJV. Strange flesh here refers to illicit use of the human body. The editors of the Queen James Bible felt that this recount of the story of Sodom needed clarification. So the strange flesh the mob of Sodom was seeking was angelic flesh. That is, it was only strange because it was non-human. Thus, the sexual violence the men of Sodom wanted to perform on Lot's guests cannot be truly called a homosexual act. Quote, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after non-human flesh— are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. QJV emphasis added, however, the men of Sodom didn't know Lot's guests were angels. For all they knew, the guests were men, just like they. The implication is that Jude is denouncing men having having sex with men, not men lusting after angels. That's right. That's right. Because if you take a look at that passage, if you take a look at that passage in Genesis 19, which they also modified, which they also perverted, it says, where are the men which came into thee this night? And even the QJV version renders it that way. Even in their own admission, the men of Sodom demanded that the men who were guests of Lot be sent out. So, also, What do you do with the book of Judges? What do you do with that passage I just read for you where you have the men of Gibeah demanding that the Levite be sent out so they can have their way with him? He's not an angel. And it's still a major problem. It's a major problem that they do to his concubine what they do. They rape her until she dies. It's a major problem that they wanted the man to be sent out so they could rape him until he died. But this is not just about consent, okay? It's not just about what consenting adults decide to do, agree to do in the privacy of their own bedroom. First and foremost, that claim asserts that we belong to ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. God made us. He gets to tell us what we do. 
That's kind of how it works. Now, if he gives us freedom, great. But when he tells us to not do something, he has not given us freedom to do that thing without consequences. And that's where these people taking liberties with the QJV destroy themselves. They're taking liberties that do not belong to them, and God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Just like you don't get to just do whatever you want with your own body without consequences, you also don't get to do whatever you want with God's word without consequences. You're playing God in both cases. It's satanic. This is not Christian. And if you call yourself a gay Christian and this is your Bible, you are deceived and you need to repent. Repent, repent, repent. Such were some of you. I've said this recently on a recent podcast. I'll say it again. Such were some of you, Paul writes, when he talks about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate abusers of themselves with mankind, which, by the way, in the original, makes it clear that it's both those who are giving and receiving homosexual activity. So it's not just rape. Otherwise, you're saying basically that those who are raped in a homosexual way, in, in a homosexual way are not going to be allowed to enter into the kingdom of heaven, or rather Paul is. But that's not what he's saying. He's not talking about rape. He's talking about sexual immorality, a choice to participate in that which is perverse and an abomination to God Almighty. God is not going to forget what it is that he said, and he is not going to change. You only destroy yourself and those who listen to you, and possibly those who tell you to repent. But I'm going to tell you to repent anyways. One more link. We'll take a look at one more link, and then I got to run. Joe Carter over at the Gospel Coalition published a piece December 16th, 2012 on the Queen James Gay Bible. The story, a new revision of the King James Bible, dubbed the Queen James Bible, edits out all references to homosexuality in order to provide a Bible translation, quote, edited to prevent homophobic misinterpretation of God's word, end quote. The background, the unnamed editors of the revision say they chose to use and retitle the King James Version to the Queen James Version because of the, quote, obvious gay link to King James known amongst friends and courtiers as Queen James because of his many gay lovers, end quote. The website for the, quote, Big Fabulous Bible, end quote, claims that homosexuality was first mentioned in the Bible in 1946 in the Revised Standard Version. Ironically, the site explains that they didn't completely remove the offending verses because, quote, Revelation, (laughs) Revelation says, and this is a quote, I kid you not, Revelation says not to edit the book, and people often extend that to mean the entire Bible, not just the book of Revelation, end quote. The editors then go on to say, Quote, we added the Bible to prevent homophobic interpretations. We made changes to eight verses, end quote. Okay, so there you go. You you know what you did, and you're admitting it, but you're not repenting of it. Another way we could describe what is happening there is to say that you are so obsessed with people not being, as you would say, homophobic, that is having an irrational fear of homosexuals, you are so focused on that, so attendant to that, that you have surrendered, given up on, repudiated fear of God. You don't fear God. You have no fear of God if you are willing to do this to his word. And this is not just a paraphrase, right? This is a very intentional, systematic, 
repudiation of God's authority, which is to say that it is an attempt at a power grab. But first and foremost, if you don't fear God, this is a power grab to take power away from those who actually do fear God and to make them into the ones who need to repent. Repent of what? Homophobia. You know what's curious? You know what's so curious to me is I do find homosexual behavior or an interest in homosexual behavior in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. I don't find homophobia in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? I don't I don't find homophobia anywhere, as a matter of fact. There's no homophobia. There's no homophobia. It is not a sin if it is even a thing. I've never met a homophobic person because a phobia is an irrational fear. I've net I've never I've never met anybody who was irrationally afraid of homosexuals. Not once. Not once. Now, I have met people who are extraordinarily uncomfortable with homosexuals and transgendered persons. But see, the, the, the distinction here is critically important between irrational fear and a rational fear. So is it irrational or is it rational to be wary of someone who doesn't fear God? It's rational. It's rational to be wary of somebody, to beware of somebody who doesn't fear God. How do we know that they don't fear God? Because they take liberties. They take liberties with his word. And also they proudly flaunt their sin and they make it into a lifestyle. That's an easy way to tell when somebody doesn't fear God. And when they don't fear God on that, then they are capable of doing anything and everything that enters their imagination or which seems good to which seems good to them or which would please them including trying to knock down the house of an old man in the city because they want to rape his guest including raping his concubine instead when they can't rape the man himself raping her until she dies even and also that whole story about Gibeah and the tribe of Benjamin being pretty much annihilated, that whole story, that needs to be understood as about more than just the homosexual offenders or the would-be homosexual offenders. That needs to be understood as being about more than just rapists. That needs to be understood as being about both those who are sexually immoral and murderous and those who affirm them and are allies of them. And notice, this is not just, this is not just the rest of Israel, the other tribes of Israel going off half-cocked and saying, we're going to kill those guys. And God up in heaven like, mm, I don't know about this. They ask him repeatedly. And actually, the last couple of times that they ask him, one gets the impression that they're kind of hoping God says, yeah, call it. That's enough. But instead, they ask him repeatedly again and again. And God says, go, fight, fight, fight. And so they do. Continuing on with this article from the Gospel Coalition, what it means. In 1807, an English physician named Thomas Bowdler 
published The Family Shakespeare, an edition of Shakespeare's works edited to remove some of the more objectionable content and phrases. Badler's work was designed to provide a more appropriate version of the classic texts for 19th century women and children. In the preface to his work, Bowdler announced his desire to make Shakespeare accessible, quote, without incurring the danger of falling unawares among words and expressions, which are of such a nature as to raise a blush on the cheek of modesty, end quote. His name later became a verb, Bowdlerize, and synonymous with expurgation of literature. How times have changed in our politically correct age. Texts are bowdlerized not because they contain words and expressions, quote, which cannot with propriety be read aloud in a family, end quote, but rather because they offend the sensibilities of those who wish to engage in and apologize for immoral behavior. What will we see next in this line of bowdlerized Bibles? Will we soon see an Emma Bovary version that scrubs all references to adultery? A new Lucifer translation that removes any references to pride? A Gordon Gecko study Bible that teaches greed is good. Perhaps instead of trying to justify one sinful behavior, the editors of the QJV should have spent more time reflecting on Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, 1-2. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Amen. Well written, Joe Carter, senior writer for the Gospel Coalition. Well written. Well said. Well said. This was December 16th, 2012. 11 years ago, this December, but just a decade ago, given that this is only February, we're not far into 2023. I do wonder, a decade on from this having been published at TGC, if this piece would be written the same way at TGC today, 10 years on. I do wonder. But in any event, the Queen James Bible is not widely regarded. And yet this attitude, this attitude of playing fast and loose with the text is increasingly a problem. And we've seen it with CRT. We've seen it with the BLM riots. We've seen it with woke Christianity. Increasingly, Christians, particularly coming through COVID, have been pushed out of the public square, unless they are the kinds of Christians who are willing to flatter, who are willing to condone, who are willing to identify themselves with the left, or unless they are the kinds of Christians who say, it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether you vote Republican or Democrat, whether you're conservative or progressive, it doesn't matter. It's all the same to God. Those kinds of Christians are brought to the fore. Those kinds of Christians in the interest of unity, if they play fast and loose with the text, they are preferred over the kind of Christians who would say, it is written, it is written, it is written. And insofar as the church is supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and a city set on a hill whose light cannot be hidden, insofar as the church is supposed to be testifying to the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the evangelion, the good news 
of the conquest of King Jesus, of Christ, of the Messiah, of the Son of God over sin and death. Insofar as we as Christians are supposed to be calling for repentance, it should be very concerning to us that the sternest rebukes from the status quo in Big Eva in the U.S. are so often reserved for the Christians who are doing that exact work, who are saying, repent. The response is too easy to say, well, everybody needs to repent. Yeah, but that's too easy. It's too easy to say that and no more. Everybody needs to repent. Yeah, nobody's perfect. Who are we to judge? It's too easy. It's too convenient. Again, going back, and and then I really do, I do have to run. Going back to what I said at the top of this episode, put aside all questions of saving the country, saving America. How about our own souls? How about our families? How about our churches? How about testifying to the goodness of God, even just within the context of the city that we live in? Because we happen to live here, because it's kind of a big deal if it goes to hell in a handbasket. As an extension of my providing for and protecting my own family, my own household, loving my neighbor as I love myself, I have to concern myself with the welfare of the city, for in its welfare, I will find my welfare. If my city is confused at best, corrupt in some quarters at worst, fearful, tragically, even when it knows better, fearful to object and to talk back and to ask the question back in a kangaroo court, if I say nothing, am I not culpable Is it not partly my fault, particularly when I have God's word and it is clear and it is not a liberty which has been granted to me by God to modify, to ignore, to reword in a way that would remove God's authority and put me up as an authority over myself? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord by God's grace. I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I'll put links in the description for this podcast episode. You can check them out yourself, share them with anybody who might need to see them. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.